Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle, a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hey everyone, it's James Crepia bringing you another edition of Ducks Confidential. This week with the WNBA draft coming up, we're going to delve a little bit into that event and how Oregon is expected to dominate uh, much of the attention throughout Friday evening's WNBA draft. It's going to be a very different draft this year uh, in a number of ways, not only because Oregon's going to dominate a lot of the attention, but because obviously it's the first major event outside of these video game tournaments and, and whatnot. I, I know there's been a couple of those, but outside of that and, and the horse competition over the weekend, uh, this is really the first major sporting event, certainly major organized event that was on the calendar that had not been impacted, rescheduled, uh, delayed, or anything else uh, in the American sports landscape over the last month. Everything else had been massively changed, canceled, delayed indefinitely, suspended. Most leagues, obviously, still suspended. Uh, all of them in the country. Nobody's doing anything uh, in terms of in-person games, practices, anything like that. So while the NFL draft has certainly deservedly drawn a lot of the attention and the headlines and uh, numerous different prognosticators have weighed in on where players will go, and uh, that attention will only continue to ratchet up this week as the NFL draft approaches also about a week or so away, a week from Thursday. Uh, so with about another 10 days or so to go, a lot more attention will be paid there. A lot has already been written about Justin Herbert, and more will continue to be written about Justin Herbert. But we'll get more into that next week as that event leads up. Because at this point, quite honestly, not as though anything has changed over the last month uh, insofar as uh, the NFL front is concerned for Oregon's prospective players. Uh, they went through Pro Day. They were one of the last teams to have a pro day, and that's about all there is to say. At this point, teams make their own internal decisions based on all their various uh, means at this point, but everything's been turned on its head. But that applies to the WNBA as well. Now, this process is better than it was previously. If you remember, going back even just a year ago, Sabrina Ionescu had to make her decision about whether or not she was choosing, make her announcement. She, she could have decided ahead of time. She says she did not. As to whether or not she was choosing to return for her senior season or not, within 24 hours after the end of Oregon's last game in the women's Final Four. Now, obviously, this year with the cancellation of the tournament, it gets really different. It's a radically different timeline compared to a year ago. But even if the season had not been suspended and the cancellation of the uh, women's basketball tournament by the NCAA and all the other postseason tournaments for that matter, uh, 
it still would have been a better timeline because players would not have only had 24 hours. Um, it still would have been a better timeline because players would have had more time from the end of the season up until the draft. Now, that said, the WNBA still has room to grow in that they don't have a full-blown uh, pre-draft combine that even the NBA has started to do. Now, how much would that necessarily make a huge difference uh, in draft ability or draft positioning? That's a fair question. Uh, but ultimately, they don't have a lot of the draft lead-up. And some of that is a byproduct of the timing of which they try to get from the postseason, from the college realm into their preseason. Some of that is a product of uh, just the limited number of rounds that isn't really necessary to have a a pre-draft combine when obviously the elite talent has kind of separated itself and would a combine necessarily radically alter that? Uh, You know, arguable, but the same could be said, hey, if you wind the clock back enough years uh, with the NBA or NFL or one of those, like, you know, what What would have made the difference? They had all these years of careers, yet they still managed to do these events and they carry some weight. So you can't say it, you can't outright dismiss it. Uh, but above all, let's call it what it is. The reason why there isn't a lot of pre-draft work uh, in that regard is because of money. It's bottom line. It, literally, uh, the bottom line. It's the sport, uh, while the WNBA has made great progress, on its uh, salaries for players and benefits for players. And that was something that happened months ago uh, amidst a new collective bargaining agreement discussions. Until there is more money in the ecosystem, uh, you're not going to have a lot of money for rookies. And when the rookies don't cost a lot of money, then there's not not necessarily a lot of downside risk in missing in any one of the draft picks. So you're not that caught up in whether or not you make a good pick, bad pick, or otherwise in a draft because it didn't cost you that much in the first place. And frankly, even the superstar players are not paid nearly enough uh, in the WNBA, but it's all about revenue sharing and things that come from the league. League's got to make more money, and now it's going to be harder for every league to make more money in the years ahead, uh, certainly in this upcoming season, whatever this upcoming season has to bear. And the WNBA has moved its schedule back. That's been the one major adjustment to the coronavirus and impact of the coronavirus on the WNBA. The league schedule, the start of the league year, has been pushed back indefinitely. And they were supposed to take an Olympic break, which is obviously not going to happen. So are they pushing back merely to start at a later date? Uh, Will they start in all the same facilities? Uh, Will they start at all? Will there be a season? These are all things that won't be known for weeks, if not months, potentially. Uh, for the WNBA, for all the professional leagues in the country. But certainly that's, again, a debate for down the road. As far as Sabrina Ionescu, Satu Sabali, and Ruthie Hebert are concerned, primarily uh, in the WNBA draft on Friday night, uh, I think it is a foregone conclusion at this point that Sabrina is going to be the number one pick. I, I don't think there even needs to be much debate or discussion as far as where she's going. She's going to the New York Liberty. There is no no debate to be had. Zero. Uh, let's put it this way, it would be nothing short of stunning in every way imaginable if she were not the number one pick because the Liberty sent an awful lot of people to Oregon throughout the season, and not just coaches and GMs. They sent an awful lot of organizational people, marketing people, to Matthew Knight Arena 
to watch their future superstar, or certainly the player they hope is the face of their franchise for many years to come. They spent a lot of money and in infrastructure to do that if they're not going to end up taking her. That that doesn't quite make a lot of sense. So let that said, she'll be the number one pick. She will definitely be, again, one of the faces of the league for the foreseeable future. Uh, certainly the Liberty hope that that's the case, uh, and she lives up to the billing. Now how her game translates to the pro level, well, time will tell. Time will tell. A lot of things that Sabrina did this year in terms of altering her game, and some picked up on it throughout the course of the season, and we're going to get into that a little bit here and going to get into that uh, in some stories during the course of the week leading up to the draft and certainly in the time thereafter and whenever the WNBA season gets going. Uh, certainly look to delve into it further with Sabrina. But she did a lot to change her game this year. Uh, now, it's not going to say that she revolutionized it. It's not as though she reinvented herself from one level to another. It took some jump that was uh, so cataclysmic that you go, you know, well, she was a good player before, but now she's truly great. No, she was great before, and she's still great. Uh, but if you look at her shooting distribution, it altered in a huge way compared to even her junior season. She was one of the best three-point shooters in the country and one of the most high-volume three-point shooters in the country as a junior. And she cut down on her volume enormously. Even if there had been an NCAA tournament in six more games and she averaged, I don't know, five or six or even seven or eight attempts per game, she still would have been way, way behind uh, where she was the year before, and for good reason. Oregon didn't need her to be that high volume a three-point shooter, and she didn't want to be. And she improved her two-point shooting game enormously, and not just in the extremely high percentage layups uh, and shots in the you know in the paint uh, in the lane. She improved her mid-range game exponentially, and it was good in the first place. But she made a major conscious decision throughout the course of last offseason to improve on her mid-range game. It was massive. And her shooting percentages from two-point range are flat-out scary. For a guard, it's almost unheard of. She was shooting, if you looked at only her two-point numbers, now again, it, you can't just push aside her three-point shooting, which was still good, though it was not you know, I'm on the top, you know, one, two, or five in the country, but again, didn't have to be. There's only one direction for her to go, you know, in terms of volume and in terms of uh, percentages from the year before. So, in, in fairness, in terms of her three point shooting, but if you put aside her three point shooting, which is a huge part of any guard's game, and look at just the twos, she was shooting at a two point clip that was as high as some of the best posts in the country. Which for a guard, again, remember, a guard who by default is shorter, uh, who by default is going to be looking for a lot more threes in the first place. And generally speaking, in the way the game is played now, you're either a post who's taking very high percentage twos near the basket, or you're a guard who's chucking up threes, but living in the mid-range is kind of a lost art. Well, instead, Sabrina rediscovered that art, not just for herself, by any stretch of the imagination, but for the better part of the sport. And it wasn't just to be more effective at Oregon, which it was in a monumental way. And for those who picked up on it throughout the course of the year in 
just her percentages and splits and way in which she was playing, uh, you really began to appreciate exactly how far this player had gone uh, to change her game from year over year. And she had talked about that, again, going back to her decision to return, some of the things that she was going to look to improve on. And boy, was that one of them. It helped at Oregon. And who knows what it could have been in the NCAA tournament. That's a side debate and topic entirely. But it will help her even more so at the pro level because the size of the opposing player and physicality of the opposing player when you're going up against grown women on a night-in and night-out basis compared to, let's call it what it is, even playing in the Pac-12 throughout the course of the regular season and playing a couple of legitimate non-conference games, Sabrina was not physically challenged very frequently. Not every night, certainly. And even against some of the best players in the country over the course of her career, you know, she showed out. Look at how many times, you know, she had her stat splits against Stanford, who during the course of her four years was, in any given year, probably the number two team or in her freshman year, the number one team in the Pac-12. And, yeah, there were others. There was Oregon State and there was UCLA, and I'm not putting down anybody else. The point is, is against some of the best competition she played, even during league play, she played better than she did against other competition, which is both a tribute to her, but also shows that even some of the best teams in the country did not necessarily have the capability, even with all the scouting tape, even with all the knowledge of her game and some of the best coaches in the country. Nobody's going to say a bad word about the coaching ability of Tara Vanderveer. But nevertheless, she put up enormous numbers throughout the course of the last three seasons, particularly the last two seasons against Stanford. Well, at the pro level, if Sabrina is able to do that, she'll be an MVP for you know many, many times over. But at the pro level, that's a lot harder for especially young players to accomplish on a consistent basis to just dominate opponents that you play on a regular basis, and especially, again, against players who are bigger, stronger, and faster on a nightly basis compared to what you were playing in college. And that goes, I don't care what the sport is, I don't care what the league, and I don't care whether it's men's or women's. That's that's just true. So with Sabrina making the adjustment to her game that she did, it helped in a big way for her this past season at Oregon. But it also will be something that she relies on in a huge way at the next level because her three-point shooting will be there, and that will be a big part of it. And whether the percentages fluctuate in any given year, that's that's neither here nor there. I mean, that'll be that that's part of playing sport. You're not you know you're not a machine. You're not going to produce the same number every night or every season. That's fine. But there's a certain ceiling and there's a certain floor, and she'll fall into that range because she's a very consistent player. But from a two-point shooting perspective, she's not going to be able to drive to the hole the same way in the WNBA as she did at the college level. Because in the WNBA, you have Brittany Griner and Brianna Stewart and Lauren Cox. Now we'll be going in with her. But you have a lot of bigs that you might only play one or two of them in a given season. In the WNBA, those bigs are there almost every night. You know, in, the, in the college game, like I say, you might play even in their heyday when UConn played in a far better league, their competition didn't necessarily pose a huge threat for Brianna Stewart 
because she was so physically imposing compared to every other player that she played. Or Brittany Griner would play against, at Baylor. Or, and, and the list goes on. Well, point is, is when you put them all in the same league professionally, yeah, it's a different, it's a different animal. You know, playing one of those kind of players during the course of your college career, like I say, maybe once or twice, that's an anomaly. At the pro level, that's a daily existence. So Sabrina changed her game, yes, to help the Ducks in the short term, but to help herself in the short term and the long term because she knew and recognized that she could not be a one-dimensional player. Not that she was in the first place, but she, when she got to the pro level, she could not rely so strongly and overwhelmingly on her three-point shooting because that then the guards will just cut down her ability there and the defenses will key on her differently there. And while she can certainly get to the hoop, as we all know, in the fast, in fast breaks and in transition, she'll have those opportunities. But at the pro level, she's not going to be able to necessarily get to the hoop in the same way. And if she does, it's going to be a different physical animal. Those players, those grown women are going to put her you know, into the crowd. They're going to knock her down. And if anything, that was a little strange this year, and it wasn't so much uh, against Sabrina, but in some of her stat splits this year, one of the more unusual numbers was her free throw numbers. Her shooting was still excellent. But even though she went to the hoop a lot, and even though she shot that much more and more prolifically from two-point range, she wasn't getting fouled, or at least wasn't getting the calls, one or the other. Now, at the pro level, again, she drives to the hoop. She's going to be taking a whole lot of contact. Now, that'll help her get some points. But at the same time, again, how often throughout Sabrina's college career did you see her drive into the hoop and just getting mashed around driving to the hoop and getting knocked down, you know, 8 and 10 and 12 times a night. It happened. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying she, you know, she wasn't a physical player. She was a physical player. But I'm talking about where the opponent was somebody who was, you know, 6'7 plus, maybe even taller than that, and that the center was knocking her down in a big way. It happened on occasion. She took hits on occasion. But I'm talking about doing it at the pro level every night that you play if you want to play with that style well sooner or later that's going to wear down anybody whether your name is Sabrina Ionescu or your name is Sue Bird or whoever it doesn't really matter it's going to wear on you so the transition she made this year to her game the improvements she made to her game will help her in the WNBA ascent and that's why even though some of her physical metrics some of the Uh, Physical capabilities and athleticism may not necessarily be the most blow-you-away sort of numbers, whether it's height, whether it's uh, hand size, whether it's arm span, whether it's speed, whatever metric you want to use, the measurable uh, in terms of the physical measurable or the measurable in terms of athleticism. While any one of those may not be the number one thing compared to other guards or other players in general, it's her combination, and her game IQ is probably the thing, which, again, that's it's hard to measure, certainly. But her game IQ and court vision is what anybody would be banking on more than anything, and the work ethic. And all of those things are largely immeasurable, other than for a pro franchise who, you know, they can try and sit her down and go over certain stuff, but although over the last, like I say, month here, uh, I don't know how anybody's sitting anybody down and doing anything, certainly nothing in person, but be that as it may. Those are the things that a team like the Liberty are going to bank on in a big way. 
Now, for Satu Sabali, the expectation and a lot of mock drafts out there for the WNBA draft have her going number two to the Dallas Wings. Now, this is uh, interesting in a couple of levels. One, if you went back to before the season, I think more of the mock drafts had Ruthie Hebert going number two. And again, it was still way too early, and it's not like the WNBA mock draft uh, industry is exactly long in the tooth uh, and a proven commodity uh, with vast experience uh, for anybody who does it. But two, it speaks to both Satu's uh, ascent and development, uh, and additionally to if if it were a year that basically if it was a year that Sabrina wasn't in a draft, <laughs> quite honestly, that a player like Sabrina wasn't there. Satu probably would be the number one overall pick because of her all-around game, all-around attributes, and her potential is seemingly limitless. And that's not speaking only from an Oregon perspective. Believe me, there's ultimately the bottom line is there's a reason why her nickname on the team was Unicorn. It's because she might have... She didn't just have the most unique game on Oregon's roster. She didn't just have the most unique game in the Pac-12 or in all of women's college basketball. Or, frankly, one could argue she might have had the most unique game in college basketball, period, this past season, maybe even the past two seasons. Though Zion, if you go back a year before, was awfully close because he could play a whole lot of different positions. But especially this past year, Satu had the most unique game yeah, I would say probably maybe in all of college basketball. Because at the college level, Satu really could play all five positions. And it wouldn't phase her. And it wouldn't radically alter the team. Sabrina can play four. And the four is a little bit of a weird one. But in Oregon system, it can work. But in, in the WNBA level, she could probably play three in a pinch. Certainly the one and the two. The three, if it's if it's set up the same, if it's basically a mirror of the two uh, in a wing shooting position, certainly could work. You would want her ball handling skills, but if you had to play a certain kind of lineup, you could probably put her out there. The four and the five at the pro level is going to be different. In the college game, you can get away with it a little bit, but at the pro level, you, you, re- you really can't. But Satu, she could probably play all five. She certainly could at the college level. And depending on how much more she grows physically and develops physically and fills out, and is this a player who puts on 10 or 15 plus additional pounds of mass over the course of years? I'm not saying in the course of a summer or or a year or even two years. But you're still talking about a young person who, if her pro career is very, very long and prolific, could be, again, you talk about those physically imposing players that Sabrina's going to face. Satu could be one of those players in the years to come. Where not only is she matched up with her, you know, again, on the wing or at the guard position, but in the right situation, Satu could be a four or five for Dallas in, in a second. I mean, that wouldn't even be a question. Now, what makes it interesting for Dallas is a couple of things. One, uh, I believe, if memory serves me correctly, that this pick was acquired through the Skylar Diggins trade. So they didn't originally have the number two pick. They acquired this pick. Uh, but regardless, uh, Dallas acquired a number of picks uh, with the Diggins trade. I couldn't remember if two was one of them, but be that as it may, it's kind of a moot point. They have six of the top 21 picks because they traded Skyler and a number of other players. They had a massively massive roster shakeup this offseason. 
uh, the Dallas Wings. So they're going through a monumental uh, organizational rebuild in terms of the locker room. And with six of the top 21 picks, they're looking to build themselves for years to come. And Satu will be the centerpiece of it. Now, in the most fortuitous of aspects for Satu, that if she does end up in Dallas, and it certainly looks like that that's the uh, strongly held belief that that'll be where she's headed, and most mocks have her going there at this point, it would be quite fortuitous for her uh, and uh, you know somebody who catches a good break because Satu is, is in a relationship with uh, former Oregon football player Jalen Jelks, and he is with the Dallas Cowboys uh, and has been for the last year plus. So Satu has been visiting Dallas throughout the course of the last year uh, and spending time with Jalen, and she's there right now. Uh, as far as I'm aware, she has been throughout a lot of the pre-draft process. So it would be, like I say, quite fortuitous for her if she ended up in Dallas. Now, of course, Jalen could end up at a different NFL team, uh, you know, any given day. Uh, that's that's just the nature of that league. But at least in the short term, in the nearest of horizons, and again, rosters in the NFL can change any single day. Uh, but just in the fact that that's an area that she's aware of and is literally in at the moment. Uh, and has been throughout a lot of the pre-draft process, that could be quite the landing spot for her, uh, at least in the short term. Now, lastly, for Ruthie, uh, who's also expected to go in the first round, the question is where? Uh, And it's really anyone's guess because, as one, it's very hard for anybody to have a lot of mock draft uh, accuracy in any sport. But the WNBA mocks, again, they they don't have a lot of history to go off of. So by means of accuracy and you know there's no Mel Kuyper or when Mayock was still doing uh, mock drafts there's no there's no Mel Kuyper or Todd McShay or Daniel Jeremiah or Mike Mayock or those types uh, in the WNBA realm yet there are a couple who are you know there are a couple of reporters who do a great job covering the league uh, but ultimately uh, again the league is still relatively speaking new newer younger than other leagues and the media that cover them, while it's increasing, and that's nice to see, uh, it hasn't had a lot of opportunities to cover vast amounts of drafts over the years uh, to prove that they have you know that particular aspect of the operation uh, with a lot of insight just yet. So where Ruthie could end up, if you were just putting odds on it just because of the sheer volume of picks that Dallas has, could she end up there? Sure. I mean... Okay, you know, again, they have six of the top 21 picks. So, in theory, you know, she could end up going there. Uh, I don't know if she would go at five or seven or whichever other picks Dallas has there, but is it possible? It's possible. Could she also end up there as a mock draft that has her going to Seattle? And if that's the case, that would certainly uh, be much of the delight of a lot of Oregon fans, as that's certainly the closest team geographically to Oregon and Ducks fans would be able to watch her. It's also the closest team geographically, obviously, to her native Alaska. So family could go down and watch her play with a level of regularity. And if not going down to watch her play at home, then they would at least have the opportunity to watch her play on television with far greater ease uh, than, say, an East Coast team where the time difference could probably be pretty problematic uh, on certain nights. It's just That's just the nature of the beast. But if she ends up on the West Coast, hey, that's possible. At the same time, would it really stun you if she ended up 
with Sabrina again. Now, I don't know anything of the New York Liberty's you know, draft processes other than, obviously, they're very invested, uh, it appears, in making Sabrina the number one pick. But I don't know of the rest of their thought process other than they have the top pick in the second round. Is it outside the realm of possibility that they would trade up? I don't know. And I don't know. I haven't looked at their full roster to see exactly what they have by way of who they could pair uh, Sabrina with. But I would not put it past any team to consider trading up to get Ruthie. Uh, and I wouldn't put it past any team to consider pairing Sabrina with Ruthie. And obviously it's the Liberty that we'd be talking about there, so I wouldn't put it past them. If they were to look into that, I, I don't think that's outside the realm at all. With that said, projecting what Sabrina brings to the next level or what Satu brings to the next level is, relatively speaking, easier because of their track records or raw athleticism or shooting ability or whatever the case may be. With Ruthie, it's certainly uh, you know what you're getting by way of post presence and rebounding. Uh, and this year, boy, did her game take a big jump this year, a big jump this year. And it wasn't just because physically she was healthy the full season. That's a big part of it. Uh, but it was she was improving well well before it got to the point of 20-plus games into the year, and that's when uh, she bumped her knee at Oregon State the year before and trying to make an assessment of the final 10 games or something. No, no, no. She made really significant strides uh, physically this year. That said, just as we were talking about earlier, where Sabrina is going to be challenged differently in terms of physicality at the next level, the same applies for Ruthie because she played the five in Oregon's system, but she wins the national award for power forward of the year. Because everyone recognized that Ruthie is not a true five. She could play the five at the college level. But she's not going to be asked to play the five at most pro teams. She could. She could in a certain personnel lineup. She might have to if they go four guards or those sorts of things. Maybe. But again, just like we were talking about with Sabrina going and if she has to drive to the hole, but she's facing, you know, a Deladon or Griner or Stewart, which was not something she had to face on a nightly basis. Uh, at Oregon, well, that's a guard driving to the basket. How about the big who has to defend those players on a nightly basis, who has to defend those posts all the time, who has to be leaned into and vice versa? That's a different physical challenge for Ruthie compared to what it was before. Again, she, did she face some bigger players during her career? Absolutely. Absolutely. None more than for Mississippi State. But... Again, you're talking about one or two, an occasional other comparable size players, certainly from Stanford or UCLA or whatever. But these are, relatively speaking, limited compared to the more frequent regularity that she'll face that in the WNBA. And that's why Ruthie's game is probably going to move from the five at the college level, where she was really playing a hybrid four or five, but there's only so many positions, so she was playing the five. To at the WMEA, she's playing the four. And not to say that that's a revolutionary change, but it's harder for teams to possibly uh, project there and know entirely what to expect. Because like I say, she just hasn't faced the bigger-sized player on a nightly basis. You know, she faced it during you know select periods in her career but and select games. 
but not on a nightly basis. And that would be said of almost any big. Look, I would even say the same thing of Lauren Cox, uh, and she's expected to go number three. As long as Satu goes two, that Lauren Cox will go three. Well, Lauren Cox dominated, dominated while at Baylor. And her and Kalani Brown teamed up together, obviously helped lead them to a national championship the year before. But in the Big 12, she never faced somebody who could physically challenge her. Just wasn't part of the equation. It, it wasn't something that she faced every day. So you're trying to project for the bigs at the college level, it's a bit more of a challenge to determine how they're going to transition to the pro level because for most of them, they have not faced a lot bigger and consistently big competition on a nightly basis. They might have had it one or two games a year as opposed to half or three-quarters or all of a season. It's just a different transition, that's all. So it's harder to project where Ruthie could end up. But again, most most mock drafts have her going in the top 12 to be in the first round. Just a matter of where, and we'll see. But that is going to dominate a lot of the attention this week, WNBA draft, as again, Oregon has three players projected to go in the first round. And Mignon Moore could still end up getting picked up too, depending on which mock draft you look at. Some have her getting picked up in the third round, some don't. It's hard to tell. And at that point, the the third round of the WNBA draft, as far as uh, whether or not that player ends up on a team, is almost like talking about day three picks in the NFL draft. Because so many of the top teams draft players, and they don't even end up making it the cut in the first place. And that includes some first-round picks sometimes. So when you get down to the third round, trying to project it and trying to understand whether or not that player will make a cut is almost a fool's errand. But be that as it may, we'll certainly stay attuned to all of those players and to the news of the week in the WNBA draft that will be coming as Oregon expected to dominate on that front. Some news on the Oregon football front Friday night as tight end Cam McCormick was granted an additional two years of eligibility. So not just one season, two seasons. And that's one, I, to be honest, I'm not sure if it's unprecedented in that I have not chronicled every player who's ever appealed for additional eligibility. But in my top of mind recollection and knowledge, it's not something that I have heard of before. If I ha- if it's come up, I, maybe once. It's not something that's terribly frequent. I know there's been some modifications to rules over the years regarding players who redshirted and then subsequently got injured. Uh, and that was already kind of a pathway by which you could get an additional year of eligibility in the first place. But obviously in McCormick's case, he was somebody who had redshirted and then got hurt twice thereafter, which is why they were appealing for those two years of eligibility because he played one year. You know, you go back in the past two years and Cam McCormick was somebody who was expected to produce big, big numbers for Oregon each of the past two seasons and has basically missed all of the last two seasons. 2018, he goes down in the season opener, misses the rest of the season due to a broken leg. 
and 2019, after returning in the spring and everything being in kind of a positive light, and again, much the expectation that he was going to be atop the depth chart, and heck, even in fall camp, while he was dealing with and recovering from an off-season ankle injury, remember in the preseason, Jake Breland went down at one point. It was minor, but point was, was you had another tight end go down, and he went, all right, he was supposed to be atop the depth chart in the first place. Then Breland goes down, and you go, well, if Camp can get back, I mean, he was probably going to be there in the first place, but if Jake's out for any period of time, he could really be the go-to guy at the tight end position. And then when the receivers went down, it became that much more critical. And then on the end, as we all know, none of it came to be because Cam McCormick was unable to ever take the field in the 2019 season for Oregon and ended up having season-ending surgery. And he's missed, again, basically, for all intents and purposes, all of the last two years. Well, he gets those years back. Doesn't mean I'll have to use him. Frankly, if everything goes according to plan, I don't think he will, and I certainly don't think he wants to. I think the plan is to maximize the time you've got, prove that you can make it through a season healthy, prove that you can be a really productive tight end and player for the Ducks. And if that all goes according to plan, then he certainly could have a prolific pro career ahead of him, even with the injuries in the past. Hey, he's a big-bodied guy. Uh, if he's able to get through a full year at health, then he can certainly look forward to a pro career thereafter. But that was the major news of this past week and leading into this week from a football perspective, uh, certainly. We'll get into more uh, in the week ahead. Again, we'll recap. Next week, we'll recap the WNBA draft and where everybody ended up. And we'll look ahead to the NFL draft. And as we get more news and notes and tidbits from some of the other sports, are still awaiting official word, uh, believe it or not, on the spring sports athletes as far as who is going to utilize the additional year of eligibility that they were granted after all the spring sports seasons were canceled due to the coronavirus. Uh, still have not gotten official word from Oregon, from coaches, uh, and requested interviews so far have not been fulfilled. So trying to get you folks more information uh, directly from, in some cases, uh, players so that we could find out who among the 50-plus spring sports seniors uh, for the Ducks will be choosing to return and utilize that additional year of eligibility. A lot of teams, a lot of schools have taken the stance that Oregon has, including Oregon State, uh, that if you choose to return, you will receive the same level of scholarship, which is the maximum they can provide for you. Uh, you can't get more than you were before. You can get up to what you were at before, or the school could offer you less, including down to nothing. But Oregon has said if you choose to return, they will offer you the same level of scholarship you were on before. Now, of the 50 plus 53, according to the various rosters and the spring sport seniors that there were, how many of them were on scholarship at all? That's unclear. When 25 of the 53 are men's and women's track and field athletes, and obviously there are not that many scholarships to go around, it's hard to determine from afar when you're not involved, and, and certainly that's between uh, coaches in the program and those players and their families as far as what their scholarship uh, uh, percentages are. But you understand why a player may choose not to utilize that additional year because if they're not on scholarship at all, then that's a massive cost burden that they were not originally planning for and their family was not originally planning for. Uh, whether it's the eligibility or not, it's just it's not something that's in the cards necessarily. 
And even if they were on a scholarship, it may not be something that's possible because, again, if you're on 25 or 50 or 75 percent, there's still a cost burden to your family that wasn't part of the original budget, <laughs> not just for the institution, wasn't part of the budget for your family to come back and give it another go. And if that means graduate school, that's even more expensive. So we will wait to see uh, and get official word from whether it's Haley Cruz and Samaria Diaz in softball or Gabe Matthews uh, and Cole Stringer and others in baseball or any of the other spring sports who among Oregon's spring sports seniors will choose to come back and who will choose to call it a day. But when we get all of that, We'll bring that to you next week right here on Ducks Confidential.